Thank you very much for your kind and fulsome welcome, and it's very good to be able to speak to you within the context of worship. Worship and theology, worship and biblical studies belong extremely close together in the life of the church, and within the rhythm of a seminary life and of a personal life, uh, it seems to me that's where they have to remain, and so it's very good to be able both to worship and pray with you, and also to share with you from uh, the Bible and looking at this extraordinary topic of Jesus' resurrection and ours. When Dr. Mulholland and I were in conversation about this, as he said, rather hastily fixed up visit, and I'm very grateful for the hospitality which allows me to do that at short notice, I said that one of the things I was writing on was the resurrection, and I rather foolishly said this topic, Jesus' resurrection and ours, which is of course a topic for an entire course of lectures, if not possibly two courses of lectures, and I'm going to try and give you just a taste of it in about 40 minutes. Uh, the reason I am excited about this topic is because it is both central and widely misunderstood within the church, among evangelical believers, among all sorts of Christians, there is great confusion at the moment, I discover, on what precisely we are to believe about our own future. When I was growing up, and in many churches that I have attended, it is assumed that the basic aim of all Christian life and all Christian hope is ultimately to, quote-unquote, go to heaven when we die. And that is so much assumed, and it's been taken for granted certainly in Western Christianity over many centuries, that even to question it seems almost unthinkable. And yet I want to suggest to you that actually there is very little in the New Testament about going to heaven when we die, and that there is far more about the promise of new bodies, risen bodies, within God's new heaven and new earth which is a rather different thing. And that if we only hold on to the old language about going to heaven, uh, we were singing back in Westminster Abbey the other day, uh, that wonderful hymn, O Lamb of God, I come, ending here for a season, then above, O Lamb of God, I come. That hymn really needs another verse, which says, there for a season, then back below again, O Lamb of God, I come. <laughs> Because the promise is not that we will simply go off into some, and people often think of it as a disembodied heaven, but that we will ultimately be citizens of God's new heaven and new earth. And that is a far more rich and exciting and challenging and invigorating hope than that which we have often lulled ourselves into believing. So I've told you where we're going now. Now how are we going to get there? Well, there is enormous confusion in the world and the church about hope. We saw it when I was thinking about this lecture, I didn't know, of course, the awful events that were going to happen on September the 11th, and I was thinking back to previous awful events which have drawn out of people the sort of hope which exists out there on the street just outside the doors of the church. When Princess Diana died in a car accident four years ago, or when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, all kinds of folk religious beliefs emerged about what people think about life after death. People talked about Diana going to be a star or possibly a comet in the sky. Some people wrote in books of remembrance, God didn't have enough angels in heaven, so he called you to go and join them and be another one. And other people went for a sort of soft pantheism of a newly created secular saint 
saying, Diana, in a sense she died, but in a sense she didn't die because she's with us still. She's with us in the sun and the rain and so on. It's quite extraordinary how the mythology appeared almost overnight, showing how many people outside the church and actually quite a few within think about what happens after death. And of course, when we examine the beliefs about what happens after death in the different great religions, we soon put an end to the old myth that all the religions are basically the same. The Buddhist desires to go off and be a drop in the ocean. The, the Orthodox Jew longs for fully-fledged bodily resurrection. The Hindu believes that there will be a karma, a fate, so that what you do in this life conditions what you come back as next time and next time and next time and so on in a very unforgiving cycle and so on. And there are many other similar beliefs which shade off into different elements of not so explicit but folk religious beliefs and we see these as well in today's funeral practices. I don't know how it is in your tradition or in your country but in my country more and more people these days request to be cremated rather than buried and that isn't simply because we're a small island and there's not that much room after all um, though that there is something in that as well but Greece is a very small country and they basically don't cremate there they still bury for theological reasons interesting but not only are people requesting to be cremated they're requesting that their ashes be sprinkled or scattered in some favorite spot again seeming to buy into some kind of pantheism as though they are going to be around there somewhere that's where their spirit is going to hover and there are all sorts of strange beliefs which are creeping up and if you look at the bookstalls perhaps not your seminary bookstall but if you look at go into the religion section of Barnes and Noble or one of those and see all the strange beliefs that are out there right now and also within the church certainly within the mainstream churches there is real confusion I have been to many funerals in recent years where the family of the deceased have requested a reading by uh, an Anglican priest from 100 years ago, Scott Holland, a reading which some of you may know, which begins with the words, death is nothing at all. I have just slipped away into the next room. Think and speak of me as you always did. I'm not far away. The irony of that is that actually, in the sermon from which that is taken, Scott Holland went on to deny that that is the truth. <laughs> he said that's how we sometimes feel when we look at the peaceful corpse of someone we have loved, looking so still and placid, but in fact we know that the reality is otherwise, and it is worms and dust and horror and ashes. But that's the bit that people want read at the funeral. Death is nothing at all. I'm still around somewhere. Don't grieve. It's a deeply unbiblical, anti-biblical almost, way of putting things. And yet, because it seems, in a superficial sense, comforting at the time, people often want that sort of thing to be read and then say afterwards that that was the most moving part of the funeral for them. I find that really very worrying. And likewise, many of our hymns, you see not only the one I quoted, here for a season, then above, O Lamb of God, I come. One of the great evening hymns of John Keeble, Son of my soul, thou Savior dear, it is not night if thou be near. That hymn ends, come near and bless us when we wake, ere through the world our way we take, till in the ocean of thy love we lose ourselves in heaven above. Now, Keeble was a great Anglican theologian, but that's Buddhism. That's drop-in-the-ocean stuff. Lose ourselves in heaven above? No. According to the New Testament, find yourself 
more fully than you could possibly have imagined in God's new creation. Somehow we have been lured into a sort of platonic, wishy-washy, souls flying off into clouds kind of theology, which the New Testament, frankly, does not sustain. Now, in the ancient world, of course, there was a wide spectrum of belief about life after death, just as there is in the modern world. It used to be said, and it's only a half-truth, that Greek thinkers believed in immortality and Jewish thinkers believed in resurrection. In fact, that's really quite confusing when you get down to the text. It's much harder than that. But it is certainly the case that throughout the pagan world, from Homer right the way through to past the New Testament period, if people spoke about resurrection, it was in order to deny it. They had various views about going into Hades, about going simply asleep into nothingness, about souls passing into a blissful or possibly an unblissful immortality, but pagans right across the board denied that bodily resurrection could actually take place. And indeed, in one of the classic documents, one of Aeschylus's plays, in, written in the 5th century BC in Athens, which describes the founding of the court of the Areopagus, where six centuries later St. Paul would stand and say the very opposite. Aeschylus has Apollo say that when a man dies and his blood is spilt on the ground, there is no resurrection of the dead. All sorts of things may happen to your soul, but there won't be any coming back. There won't be any re-embodiment. In Judaism, and it's a shock when you place Judaism within that wider context to see just how unique and remarkable this is. In Judaism, there is this hope which grows up after the exile, a hope expressed in the metaphor of Ezekiel 37, but then classically in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 became the great resurrection chapter for many Jews thereafter and on into the uh, post-New Testament world, Jews went back to Daniel 12 with its affirmation that many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and many, many of them will shine like the stars in the sky. That is the context within which the extraordinary thing happened of a small group of people who held a much more sharply focused view. Because when you examine the early Christian view of what happened to them both after death and ultimately after death, it stands out in its uniqueness because it is both a Jewish view and it is much more sharply focused than the normal Jewish views because there were many Jewish views. If you compare the Dead Sea Scrolls to Josephus, to Philo, to Maccabees, etc., there are various ideas about resurrection, but when we examine the New Testament, suddenly the whole thing has got firmed up. And though I'm not going to go into the arguments in any detail here today, because my purpose is to move on from Jesus' resurrection to ours, when it seems to me one of the classic, finest arguments for the bodily resurrection of Jesus is that something must have occurred which caused those early Christians, not just Paul, but first Peter and several others, to write so firmly and clearly about resurrection as a going through death and out the other side. 
You see, if all you had was Daniel 12, you might say that, well, it was a sort of going to heaven and shining like a star. Yes, that's what Daniel said, and you could combine that with views of astral immortality that were around in the ancient Near East at the time. And if all you had was Second Maccabees with its very literal physical prediction, you could say, well, it's just coming back into exactly the same sort of life all over again. But the early Christians say neither of those things. They see the final hope as going through death and out the other side into a body which is still what we would call physical, but which is somehow transformed, somehow different. And already by Paul, that idea of coming through and out the other side into a transformed life has played itself back into Paul's understanding of what happens through baptism and conversion in this life. In Romans 6, he speaks about going through death and out into a new sort of life where you do different things, where you have a different kind of lifestyle. So we have to find a way of explaining, quite simply, how this could come to be. And let's be very clear here, and uh, I struggle to say this in uh, lectures back home because it, is, it seems so opaque to people, that when we're talking about resurrection, we are not simply talking about life after death. We are talking about life after life after death. The resurrection hope is a second stage because only Jesus is so far raised from the dead. This is leaving in square brackets those strange people who come out of the tombs at the end of Matthew 27. Um, if you want to send me an email and tell me what that means sometime, I will be very delighted to hear from you. Um, it's, it's always been a puzzling passage. But basically, and this is good Pauline theology, Jesus is raised from the dead, but nobody else is. And even in Jesus' case, there was a period, a short period of inside three days, when he was dead, but not yet raised. So that even for Jesus, resurrection was a life after, life after death. You see, this knocks on the head, so to speak, any idea that the resurrection was just a nice way of talking about Jesus going to heaven when he died. Often, in many people's language about Jesus' resurrection, many books that have been written even at a scholarly level, people seem to assume that that's basically what the early Christians meant, that Jesus had died, but that his death was a victory, so he had gone to heaven, and he was exalted. And by collapsing the resurrection and ascension into one, as it were, people are able to say that Jesus was, well, he was really rather like the Maccabean martyrs who were exalted. They were glorious. Their souls were there in the hand of God, and so on. But that cannot be what the New Testament was talking about. But these misunderstandings are out there on the street. You may have read in the papers that when one of the Orthodox rabbis in Brooklyn died a few years ago, his followers had thought that he was the Messiah and that he was going to declare himself as Messiah before he died. Then when he died, there was a division within his followers, but many of them said he really was and is the Messiah. He has gone to be with God, and he will come back again. Now, the interesting thing is what many other Jews said to them at that point. They said, you just got that stuff from the Christians. Because they thought that the Christian belief was that Jesus had died and gone to heaven and would return again. No. The Christian belief is that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. 
and then ascended and will return. And nobody, so far as I know, suggested that the aforesaid rabbi was actually bodily raised. In fact, some people waited for him to come to life again, and of course he didn't. So we need to be quite clear what it is we're talking about. And I hope in this seminary that you all are clear about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. But believe me, out there in the churches, in the pews, and outside the door of the churches, there is huge confusion. And if you can't get it clear, then who can? Now, I have advanced my own particular arguments about the bodily resurrection of Jesus much more fully in the challenge of Jesus, which has already been mentioned, chapters 6 through 8, and I'm working on a larger book uh, about the resurrection of Jesus, so I don't want to say much more about that. I want to go on beyond because, of course, the New Testament continually looks not just at Jesus' resurrection but at the future hope of Christians for a physical but transformed embodiment. And it's that that I really want to speak about. And incidentally, though, before I get onto that, how do you celebrate Easter? How do your churches celebrate Easter? I, this is a question that somebody will answer me over lunch, perhaps, because I really don't know how you guys do it. In my tradition, we get it all wrong. I'll tell you what we do in the Anglican tradition. We keep Lent. We're very good at Lent. We give things up. We give up alcohol. I mean, you give up alcohol when you come to Asbury, I take it anyway. So. Um, <laughs> You have, you have three years of Lent. I shouldn't be saying this. Um, but in, in my tradition, we give all sorts of things up for Lent. Then when we get to Holy Week, we do Palm Sunday spectacularly. Some churches even have an actual donkey, which can be messy, but we, we sometimes do it. And, and we tell the story, and then through Holy Week, we live the story. It's one of the great moments in the Anglican calendar, is that we actually do Holy Week, and we take it seriously. And we have long meditations, and we have music, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, and all the rest of it. Great music. And then we get to Maundy Thursday, and we do the foot washing, and we get to Good Friday, and we, we do, whether it's Stations of the Cross or whatever, we live that story. And you really sense and feel the power of the crucifixion narratives again. And then Holy Saturday is this kind of strange, dark interval. And then we do a midnight celebration of Easter, which is wonderful. And then Easter morning is full of light and joy and music. And then we stop. And everyone goes on holiday because the choir have just been singing their hearts out for a week and they're exhausted and all the clergy have been up half the night at services and they're exhausted so you you keep sorrow and gloom and uh, penitence and humiliation before the cross week after week reaching a climax then you do one day for the greatest event in the history of the world and my argument has been in Westminster Abbey, and they haven't taken this seriously yet, that we ought actually to have double the number of services throughout Easter week with champagne served at matins. I mean, we, we ought to do this thing properly. This is the champagne moment in the history of the cosmos when Jesus of Nazareth burst the bonds of death. And we do it for one day, and then we go on holiday. Give me a break. The way we celebrate, the way we keep Easter ought to be consonant with the truth that Easter is. And if we did that, then we might find it easier to speak about our own future bodily hope in a way which at the moment we don't. We don't have the language for it, or we think we don't. So we collapse back into, till in the ocean of thy love we lose ourselves in heaven above, which is not biblical. 
Where has that heaven stuff come from? I think it's partly come from Matthew's gospel because people read Matthew first because it's the first in the canon, and Matthew is talking about the kingdom of heaven, whereas Mark and Luke, as you know, are talking about the kingdom of God. And so people read that language, kingdom of heaven, and they think that that means a kingdom, which is a place somewhere, called heaven, and Jesus is saying, do A, B, C, and D so that you may go to the, enter the kingdom of heaven. And because they, are, they come with their minds attuned, expecting to be told about how to go to heaven when you die, they assume that's what Jesus is talking about. And as I hope you know, that isn't what the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew's Gospel are about at all. Because the Sermon on the Mount has as its central focus the Lord's Prayer, which prays that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And we still go on with this spirituality which says that we want to be in heaven as it is in heaven. Let's get the biblical hope and not the Platonized version of it. Now, how do we then approach the question of our own future destiny? We have to start with the big picture and work in. If you start simply with yourself, as so often in many traditions we tend to, you may well get it wrong or at least out of focus. Start with the big picture. Start with Romans 8. Start with 1 Corinthians 15. Start with Revelation 20 and 21. Romans 8 gives you this picture, as I was speaking briefly about last night, of a renewed cosmos, the entire created order set free from its bondage to decay. Paul is telling a large-scale story of the Exodus at this point. He uses Exodus language. He uses wilderness wandering language for who we are at the moment in Romans 8 as he does in 1 Corinthians 10 and elsewhere. And he talks about the inheritance that we're going to, not in terms of a disembodied heaven, but in terms of a renewed creation. That is our goal, the goal of our wandering. As the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, going to the promised land, we are going through the present wilderness, having been set free from sin and death through the resurrection of Jesus and through our own baptism into him and through the gift of the Spirit. We are now led by that Spirit as the children of Israel were led by the pillar of cloud and fire. That's the language Paul uses. And our goal, our inheritance, is this entire renewed creation. And within the present mode, as Paul says, we groan because we are longing for that new reality which is yet to dawn. Is your vision of God and the world big enough for that? Or are you still trapped in the view that so many are, both in devout Christian circles and outside, that think that really the present world is a rather shabby old place and that whoever made it didn't do a terribly good job, and that one day it's going to be thrown in the trash can and we will all be off somewhere else. That's not the vision of Genesis 1, which said that God made it very good. Okay, it is subjected to futility, Paul says, not of its own will, but of the will who's, of the one who subjected it in hope, because the whole creation will be set free from its bondage to decay, to share the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is the hope of Romans 8. And 1 Corinthians 15 is similar in that great paragraph, verses 20 through 28 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul speaks of the sequence of events, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 
And then comes the end when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father so that every enemy may be subjected to him, so that God the King may be all in all. It is a huge vision of God's defeat of every possible enemy, finally sin and death themselves. And notice, if death is defeated, that must mean resurrection. People get very silly at this point and wishy-washy, and they imagine that to defeat death means going off into some kind of blissful immortality. No. If what happens when we die is that our bodies are jettisoned and our souls or spirits or whatever they may be go off somewhere else, that is not the defeat of death. That is simply the description of death. That's what death is. And that isn't to defeat death. For death to be defeated, there has to be resurrection. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, as I hope you know, it isn't the case that Christians are taken away from the earth and up into heaven. It is rather, that's the vision of Gnosticism. It is rather the case that the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth so that earth and heaven are one, and the dwelling of God is with mortals. And this vision of renewed, restored creation fills and heals God's whole world with the leaves from the tree of life being for the healing of the nations. That is the big picture within which we have to locate our own future hope. Notice what has happened in that big picture. It is the ultimate Jewish hope, but transposed into a new key. Isaiah has a vision of new heavens and new earth. But when you look at the detail of Isaiah's vision of new heavens and new earth, you find that people still die in it. They just die a little bit later, that's all. They live to be 100 or whatever. But it's really rather like the present sort of world. With Revelation, with Romans, with 1 Corinthians, we've gone through that and out the other side. Why? The Jewish vision has been transformed and taken a stage further because, precisely because of, the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, within this vision of cosmic renewal, one of the critical central features is the presence of Jesus himself. I haven't got time to talk about the second coming here today, but it is absolutely central to the New Testament vision of the Christian hope that within this new world, Jesus himself will be personally, visibly, warmly, lovingly, healingly present. And indeed the word parousia, as I said last night, doesn't so much mean coming, it means royal presence. The presence of Jesus within the renewed creation. And I find if I put the big picture of creation renewed first, I find it much easier then to locate all the New Testament's varied language about that presence of Jesus and how it comes to be. But within that in particular, and this is the heart of what I want to say to you this morning, we have this extraordinary hope of new bodies. The classic passages are again in the Corinthian correspondence, in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. But again and again all through, Paul either presupposes bodily resurrection or sometimes insists on it. Think of the end of Philippians 3. Christ will change our humiliated bodies to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him to subject all things to himself. But in 
Second Corinthians, let's just take that first, 4 and 5, he speaks of the present and the future, not as so many Christians assume in terms of a present physical body and a future non-physical body, but a present body and then a future one which will be put on over the top. So that, you know how sometimes we speak of somebody who's been very ill as only a shadow of their former self. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, Paul is saying that if you're a Christian, if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are a shadow of your future self. The best is yet to be. There is more to come. Paul says we don't desire to put off this present tent or tabernacle or temple that we live in. We desire to put on the new one over it. We don't desire to be unclothed, but to be more fully clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That is exactly the same vision that he has in 1 Corinthians 15, with one exception. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul assumes, it seems, that he will be among those who are still alive when the Lord appears again and God remakes the whole creation, so that he will not pass through death and an interim period to resurrection, but that he will simply be transformed. By the time he writes 2 Corinthians, and we can see why this probably is, he has got to the point where he accepts that he is likely to die before that event. There's thus a difference of perspective between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but not, I think, any critical difference in theology. Though there are little bits to tease out there, but I think basically that's the, the way to take it. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, this is, of course, a massive chapter, and I haven't got time to do more than just touch on a couple of points in it. But I want to go straight for the heart of it, because in 1 Corinthians 15, we reach the passage which comes up again and again in discussion and debate. Some of you will have seen the book that I wrote with Marcus Borg, The Meaning of Jesus' Two Visions, and Marcus and I have done many debates on the road in public, as well as many in private, believe me, about many aspects of Jesus and early Christianity, but again and again and again we come back to the resurrection. And Marcus comes back again and again and again to 1 Corinthians 15, where in uh, verse 44, in the RSV and the NRSV, and I've got an NRSV here, Paul says, the body is sown a physical body and it is raised a spiritual body. And so Marcus says, there you are, uh, the present body is physical, the future body is spiritual. That's what Paul thinks the resurrection is all about. Therefore, very quick, therefore, Jesus had a spiritual body, therefore there wasn't an empty tomb. Therefore, Jesus' resurrection was not bodily in the sense of physical, it was a spiritual event. And that argument actually is not new in the 20th century, it wasn't new in the 18th century enlightenment, it was already faced by Irenaeus and Tertullian in the second century in their battles against uh, the early Gnostics and was dealt with pretty thoroughly then, but we seem to have to fight these battles again and again. And then the other bit that comes up is verse uh, 52 of the same, no, verse, verse 50 of the same uh, chapter, when Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And what people fail to realize, and what the RSV and NRSV tradition and several others, alas, have misled us on, is the actual meaning of these words at the time. The word translated physical and the word translated spiritual do not mean what those words in English seem to us to mean today. They aren't so much about what something is composed of, they are more about 
what something is animated by. It is if I were to contrast, say, a leather balloon and a rubber balloon, that's what is the balloon made of, and then if I were to say, ah, but this balloon is filled with helium and that balloon is filled with hydrogen. To say spiritual in this sense is not telling you what the body is composed of, it's telling you what it is animated by. And the critical thing is that this is the present body is a body animated by what Paul calls the soul, the psuche. It is a psuchikos body, a soulish body, and the future body will be animated by the spirit. And that is precisely what he says in that great passage, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, where he uses the language of the destruction and rebuilding of the temple in order to say that the spirit who comes to indwell you, like God indwelt the temple, that the spirit will give life to your mortal body also through that spirit who dwells within you. If you're in any doubt about the meaning of those passages in 1 Corinthians 15, go back to Romans 8 verses 10 and 11 as the sheet anchor which will keep you firmly in place. Because you see, when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, the phrase flesh and blood doesn't mean simply what we call physicality. Flesh and blood is a way of saying corruptible flesh both in the sense of physically corruptible and decaying, bits start to drop off and you get sick and ultimately die, and morally corruptible in that this flesh is the place where and the means by which we rebel against God and we worship idols rather than God. And Paul says, no, we must be changed, we must be transformed. This mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruption. And then we're back again, of course, to where we were with 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 4 and 5. So what Paul holds out before us, and this is a very brief account, of course, and one could go into it in masses more detail, what Paul holds out before us is a transformed physicality within God's transformed creation. And of course, right from the beginning, go back to Irenaeus and Tertullian again, people have been very puzzled by that. They have said, what will this new body be like? They said it to Paul. Does that mean that God has to reassemble the actual same molecules and atoms all over again? Tertullian had this wonderful problem. Supposing a Christian gets eaten by a cannibal, and then supposing the cannibal, who has now got some of that Christian's atoms and molecules inside his own body, supposing the cannibal gets converted, and so when he dies, who's going to have which bits when God reassembles all the bits and pieces? And the fact that Tertullian and the others faced those problems and had to argue about them shows pretty well what sort of belief they had in the physicality, the embodiedness of the resurrection. I think the best answer I have found to this is actually not Tertullian's answer, but C.S. Lewis's. Uh, I don't always agree with Lewis, but on this point, I think he's absolutely right on in his book, Miracles, where he says, points out that in any case, as we now know, the entire physical composition of a human body changes over the course of seven or eight years, not just fingernails and hair, but all the atoms are in a state of flux and change and transformation. And Lewis says we are all, to that extent, like the curve in a waterfall. 
There is continuity of form, but transience of matter. And what the resurrection requires is what precisely is promised in Romans 8, a great act of new creation, so that God who made the world in the first place will give us new bodies. For many, there may well be, in the mercy and strange ways of God, continuity between bones and so on from what was there once to what will be. Obviously, many burial customs in, uh, among Christians until very recently took that for granted, so that in my tradition, people got buried facing east with the assumption that the new day would dawn and be seen from the east and people would rise to face the Lord on that day. I don't think people are so worried these days about which direction they get buried facing in, but we have to take seriously the fact that God is going to remake creation, not throw it away and start over, but that there will be new bodies and enough atoms and molecules to go around. This will not be a problem. And uh, we all share around atoms and, and so on with each other as it is. And uh, God will, on the last day, make a new world, including the new bodies that we need. This leaves us, of course, with the question which has vexed many Christians over many centuries, which is how best to speak about the dead now. Let me say at this point, I have no problem with talking about the Christian dead going to heaven when they die. That is a way of saying what Paul says when he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That, it seems to me, is the classic way of talking about where the dead, the Christian dead are now, as long as you realize that that's not the end of the story heaven or paradise in the Jewish tradition, paradise is a word for the intermediate resting place where people wait in a state of bliss against the day when God will give them the new world and the new bodies to live in that new world. Professor John Polkinghorne, the great Cambridge scientist turned theologian, has a more modern metaphor for this. He says that God will download our software onto his hardware until the day when he gives us new hardware of our own to run the software again. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite comfortable with that. And actually, I think it's no bad thing to distance ourselves from the language of the soul. The language of the soul is not a particularly Christian language. In the New Testament, it is never said that all human beings possess immortal souls. That is a platonic belief. Immortality is a gift, according to 1 Timothy. It's something which the gospel has brought to light as God's gift to those who are in Christ, which then raises, I know, all sorts of other questions. So when we think about the dead, when we grieve for the dead, as we are commanded to do, grieve but not as those who don't have hope, we shouldn't simply think, oh, well, they've gone off into some blissful beyond and we'll go and join them one day. That may be an appropriate way of telling part of the truth. Here for a season, then above, O Lamb of God, I come. But then, there for a season, and then finally, below again into God's new heavens and new earth. Do you know that hymn? Do you sing that hymn, uh, For All the Saints Who From Their Labors Rest? Is, is, is that a hymn you know? Um, we, we sing it on All Saints Day, which is November the 1st. I'm looking forward to it in, in just a few weeks from now. 
And that gets it absolutely right. Sweet is the calm of paradise the blessed, alleluia, but lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day, the saints' triumphant rise in bright array. Let's think clearly, and let's particularly teach our congregations to think clearly about all this, because there's so much muddled thinking out there, and we need to get it right. But I want to end with this, where Paul ends in 1 Corinthians 15. Thinking about the resurrection like this isn't simply a matter of thinking about the future. You might have thought at the end of that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul would want to end by saying, so isn't it wonderful we have this glorious future ahead of us, so let's celebrate that and look forward to it. He doesn't. 1 Corinthians 15 ends with verse 58 where he says, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What does he mean? How does that therefore work? You know the rule with Paul, when you see a therefore, ask what it's there for. Again and again, you've got to do that with understanding how Paul's logic functions. The therefore works like this, that what you do in the present as kingdom builders is not wasted. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's just going to go off a cliff. You are working with God by the Spirit. And both in your personal life, Paul relates this to personal holiness in chapter 6. He says, your body is going to be raised, therefore what you do with it now matters. And also in your work for God in the church, in the world, you are doing things which matter because they will be enhanced and ennobled and find their place in God's new world. Therefore, reflecting seriously on the resurrection might seem to be, as people often charge us with, pie in the sky when you die or possibly pie back on earth in some new creation. Isn't that nice as a dream for the future? No, it gives us the imperative for work in the present. And I end with this. Read Romans 8 like that. Read Romans 8 about God's life-giving, liberating purposes for the world and say to yourself, that purpose has already begun. It began when Jesus of Nazareth came out of the tomb on the first Easter morning. What are we doing today to make that purpose a reality? Okay, we won't bring the kingdom by our own efforts. I'm not talking about a, a completely realized eschatology. But we live by the Spirit in the present. What are the signs of freedom and hope that we are called as resurrection people? to bring to God's world today? That's a question that I shall leave you to find the answer to. God bless you.